Hello, this is Adam S. Leslie, co-host of this very podcast. A quick plug before we start, my folk horror novel, Lost in the Garden, is now out and available in all good bookshops, including Blackwells and Waterstones. And now, back to your regularly scheduled Retrotube. Welcome to Cardboard Cinema Club, the podcast in which a guest and I discuss a film that we both love. There's no twist and no gimmick, it's just two people talking about a film. It's a low-concept podcast. As with all movie podcasts, there will of course be spoilers, although we'll try and avoid giving them away gratuitously. Joining me today is the first guest from my parallel podcast, Retrotube. It's our interference correspondent, Alex Pearson. And today we're talking about an American werewolf in London. You saw me standing alone Without a dream in my heart Without a love of my own So, can you give us a quick summary of the premise of American World from London? Well, I mean, it's great because basically the title tells you everything you need to know. It is an American werewolf who is in London, but... For a little bit more than that, there are two young guys from America on their European trip and they're on the Yorkshire Moors when they get attacked by a beast and one of them unfortunately dies, but the other one survives but has become a werewolf and it's the story of him leading up to the full moon and what happens then. I'm going to use a series of questions to... uh facilitate the podcast so the first question is why is this film important to you it was a very formulative film in my love of horror which is you know that's the thing i love more in all you know in books in films it's my favorite thing and this is one of those films that i watched very young um that really made me love horror and especially horror comedy which is my favorite thing and it's the hardest thing to do well for something to actually be scary and funny it's so impossible there's the films that do it are my favorite films like this evil dead 2 i absolutely love but yeah this was a very formative film watching this in sort of that that growth because i did watch it quite young yeah and that sort of encompasses my second question as well do you remember when you first saw it and how you felt about it then yeah so not very clearly when i must have been about nine or ten but I do remember really loving it. I think there were probably some bits of it that I just kind of blanked out as a child, almost certainly watching it with my parents because there are some yes. sex scenes and I think I just probably ignored them. They're just saving water. Yeah, but I loved it. And I remember being like terrified of some scenes and really heartbroken in others. You know, like I don't want to give too much away, but... There's some sort of quite sad bits at the end. And there's also a scene where where David, the main character, has to call home and he speaks to his sister on the phone. That's a very well done scene, isn't it's it? It's really lovely. It's it's a very good example of, you know, you're only hearing one end of the conversation, but he's not like 
repeating everything the other person says in a weird way that no one would do. It's very well acted, that scene, isn't it? Because it is... It's such a low-key... And you could say it's quite a minor scene. But but the acting in it is very good because he gets a... You, you kind of don't think that he's just talking to an empty phone box. That there isn't actually a little girl on the other end of the phone. He's delivering it exactly like it would be. Plus you have the different levels of emotion when he's well, he's he's saying goodbye to his family. Or well, he wants to, but only his little sister is in and he wants to tell her that he loves her without giving away why. Because at this point he knows that he's a werewolf and is likely not to survive. So it's really nicely done, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's beautiful. There are moments where... Like you said, it's very much he is talking to his irritating little sister, you know, and he desperately wants to talk to his parents and he desperately wants to pass on this message that he loves them. But he's still having to talk to little, like, ten and a half year old Rachel who appears to be in the house on her own. And yeah, I remember as a little kid being like, oh, that's really sad. But yeah, I absolutely loved it the first time I saw it. And I've watched it countless times since. I have as well, actually. I think this is, for a lot of people, this is my first horror film. And it's the same for me. I went round to my friend Mark McLean's house and I can't remember the exact circumstances. I can't remember whether he'd invited me over to watch this uh, or I happened to go over and he's like, oh, I've got this film. His parents had gone out appropriately to to do that that last scene we discussed. So it was just me and him on on our own in the the, uh, house. Uh, So it was a bit illicit. It had that kind of illicit thing to it as well particularly since we didn't have a video recorder at this point a video player this is probably like 84 85 so i would have been 10 or 11 ish because i'd never seen a horror film before outside of yeah i might have seen those vaguely spooky 50s b movies science fiction b movies that were sometimes on tv back in the day but i'd never seen a proper modern horror film with actual violence and blood and gore in it before i'm sure mark had seen plenty he was a lot more worldly than i am uh (laughs) He was probably more worldly then than I am now, frankly. <laughs> and it was such an exhilarating experience as well. And I, it also helped because we watched it at Mark's house in a village called Huff on the Hill, which is a tiny, tiny little village out in the middle of the Lincolnshire countryside. Uh, Lincolnshire's normally very, very flat, but we're in Huff on the Hill, as the name suggests, is more of a hilly area. Very rural, tiny village. He was living in this farmhouse that had all this this land around it, so it was fairly isolated. So, of course, we started watching the film, and the beginning of the film is in, I think it's actually Wales, but it's supposed to be the Yorkshire Moors. So we instantly felt a connection to the film that was taking place initially in the landscape that we, we were living in. And what's this kind of bleak alien landscape to the two main characters and to, to the vast majority of the viewers, most of most of whom wouldn't live in those tiny remote rural villages in somewhere in the north of England, but we were. That was yay! This is our this is our territory. And so I had brilliant. that same feeling, but when they get to London, because I grew up in inner city London, and all those bits when they're in the centre, that was you know that that was home. And those were all those places I knew. So that was for me. That was the really exciting bit to see this film that, you know, was still this, like, big, proper, like, American film, but was in London and, like, gritty bits of London as well. Yeah, it's not pretty, is it? It's not like a postcard version of London. It looks real. It's grey and mucky. Yeah, it Mm. looks rainy and horrible. (laughs) And, like, like, I remember 
you know, in the 80s, they still hadn't finished cleaning things from after the war. So everything was really like grey and dirty. And yeah. you really see that. You do. And I love seeing all the 1981 things. Even the, um, I love seeing the 1981 things that remind you that 1981 probably wasn't actually that much fun. <laughs> so as well as the nostalgic things like the till, when they go to the corner shop and she's ringing up one of the old fashioned tills. I really like that. But just other elements of like oh that's really grotty like the the bit with the three tramps yes yeah and they're on you know you can see tower bridge you can <laughs> this this scrap huge scrap heap with cars and stuff and tramps living there with their braziers and it's yeah it's a stone's throw from tower bridge would now that would be i mean there are arguments about capitalism the fact that these are now the the swankiest poshest of all apartment blocks yeah but certainly you you wouldn't feel a bit weird going there at night you'd be you'd feel probably quite safe walking around there at night and there would be no more enormous scrap heaps and also the the pornography theaters off leicester square and piccadilly circus that's it they're right there and that that was real as well that's not something that was put in you know for the film for laughs or anything there were like porn theatres on Piccadilly Circus. And possibly you could say London has, has slightly slipped the other way that it's a bit too corporate. I mean, I am not a big fan of M&M World. No. For example. <laughs> <That's>, uh... <laughs> yeah, that, it's probably, I would say, I prefer it now, but there is something, something there that definitely for me has this like childhood nostalgia about it. Not that I went into grotto porn theatres as a small child. <laughs> I would like to say. No, just the general thing, yeah. Now I am no longer alone Without a dream in the, uh, my uh, heart the, the, the opening is very elegant. So it doesn't feel like a comedy or a horror particularly. Yeah, it just starts with all those like beautiful shots of, yeah, what I believe is actually Wales, but it's meant to be the auction malls. And it, yeah, it's, it's just beautiful. Watching it this time, it made me realise how similar it is to the opening of Blue Velvet, oddly, because it doesn't look anything like it. But Blue Velvet opens with Bobby Vinton singing a song about blue things, and there's all these lovely picturesque shots that lull you into a false sense of security about, oh, this is, this is a very picturesque What a nice place. film I'm watching. <laughs> yeah, and American Worf in London starts with Bobby Vinton singing about blue things and all these lovely picturesque shots lulling you into a false sense of security. Yeah, Joe had never made that connection, but that's really true. If you saw those beginning shots and then stopped the film, you know, half a minute in, you wouldn't necessarily Mm. know what you were watching at all. But every time I hear Bobby Vinton now, it makes me think I'm up for something horribly dark (laughs) happening (laughs) in the near future. It's uh, Blue Moon, which is one of the songs that recurs throughout the film. Bobby Vinton's version, then Sam Cooke's version later on, and the Marcells at the very end. I, I do love them all, and I think that the tones of them are so perfect for when they use them. So I do love at the end. Was it? Do you say it's the Marvels at the end? It's the, the Marcells. Marcells. Yeah. I love that at the end. Yes, that's a nice contrast, isn't it? It's so that they have these three different versions that perfectly fit their moments. They sort of punctuate the film. There's one at the very beginning, one at the very end, and then one in pretty much bang in the middle. As things are about to get real, it's the big uh-oh moment. You get Sam Cooke's uh, gorgeous version as well. Sam Cooke's voice is so beautiful. I think this is one of the best films when it comes to counter-scoring. 
which for anyone listening who doesn't know the term counterscoring, it is that practice of using ironic music against a scene. And probably the most famous version is Stuck in the Middle with You from Pulp Fiction. No, from uh, for Reservoir Dogs, sorry. Is it? He's torturing the cop and it's playing a jaunty, happy 70s pop song. It's one of those things that shouldn't work but does work really well. It really heightens the emotion. And it's usually counterscoring is usually like a happy thing against a dark or violent or traumatic or sad scene and it, it it kind of it lifts it somehow and this is a this is a great film for that yeah so many songs just have been sort of you know brought together all these songs that are about the moon and then put, like just putting them perfectly in the right place in this film mm. it's and it's essentially just a gag yeah. But it works brilliantly. Like, even though it's just songs about the moon. Yeah, it it works and everyone works in the right place where they put it. It's brilliant. And he's resisted, thank goodness, uh, employing Werewolves of London by Warren's Even, which is a fine song, but it would be a little on the nose. Yeah, a bit too, bit too much. It's like, hey, I did Werewolves in London, hang on a minute. <laughs> yeah, you've just added the word America and I see what you've done. <laughs> Also, another thing that occurred to me is that this seemed at the time much more of a comedy in horror comedy than it does now. I think, I don't know, because I think when I was little, I found all the scarier bits much, much scarier. So I think now I appreciate the the humour more. Yeah, I don't know. I suppose when I watched it, I didn't have like the context of a lot of horror films like the first time. And now I do have a lot more and... There's certainly a lot of very explicit horror, a comedy even in this, without without it sort of tipping over into just comedy. Yeah, I think it, that's what it does really well is that it it plays the horror absolutely straight. It's not it's not a spoof, and it's not making the horror seem the horror isn't part of the comedy. No, it, it's real. The bits when, you know, there are bits when people are in pain and things are happening like that. And those are just done completely straight. There's gore and that is just, you know, portrayed so well. But yeah, then there are very funny and just quite silly things happen. I think now, to me, it seems more comedy than horror. But definitely when I first watched it, I think I was just just terrified. (laughs) I think possibly sort of what made me think that is that at the time, kind of the contemporary horror film, certainly the the classier ones, so you get things like The Shining or The Changeling or The Omen or The Exorcist or anything Mm. with The, were very, very serious. That's true. There's almost no humour in them at all. Like, you know, as much as I love all those films, yeah, they are... Sort of the opposite of this. They are very, just very serious. I can almost see, you know, John Landis sitting there and thinking, these are great, but... Because I think in real life, people do make light of situations they're in. So I think that's why I love horror comedy so much and why it works so well is because people do make, you know, gallows humour. People make jokes in uncomfortable and scary situations. Yeah, and I think also, I think these days films are a lot more, I can't think of a better word, but hybridised. That's a terribly pretentious word to use, but I couldn't <laughs> think of it. It came into my mind um, in that they will be, there will be a lot more light and shade. Yeah. In them. And there were even... Um, Midsummer, which how many times did you see that at the cinema? I saw it seven in the cinema, including wow. going to see the director's cut, which is 
amazing. And the director's cut has even more humour in it. Oh, really? Yeah. Because that, I mean, that is, when you think back, I mean, possibly not you because you know it so intimately, but I've, I only saw it twice. Uh, and thinking back to it, it's quite a serious film. But it has it has an overtly comedy character in it. It has uh, old Will Poulter. That's true. And I, I would never describe that as horror comedy. No. It has... It has jokes. It has, like you said, a comedy character in it. I think. Have you seen Sinister? Is that one of the James Wan ones? No, no. It's got um, Ethan Hawke in it. Oh no, I haven't. It's. I love it. And again, I probably wouldn't actually describe that as being horror comedy, but it has it. It has a comedy character in it. It has some jokes, and those moments of levity really help to raise the tension in the scary bits. They do, don't they? Yeah, and I, I, you're I right. I think nowadays that's just more common. I think as everything's got more... I was talking about this the other day because I think nowadays we have this expectation in films that things will seem quite naturalistic, even if it's horror or science fiction, that people will act quite naturally. And I wonder if, you know, the fact that, like I said, people do naturally throw in jokes and make jokes in uncomfortable situations is part of that, that actually if someone was being completely straight and serious all the time it would seem weird i think so started watching the changeling with um george c scott in it a few weeks ago and it's so dour that's i love i watched that like so too young i think i was about (laughs) eight and my granddad had it on video and me and my brother somehow like put it on and my brother is not a horror fan and he was like, I don't want to watch any more of this. But I was like, I need closure. (laughs) I probably didn't use that word at the time, but I was just like, I have to know what happens. So I sort of ended up watching the rest of it on my own from about halfway point. But there's nothing waggish or wry about it, is there? It's very, very serious, very grown up. Very. And you probably do get some films like that these days, maybe, but I think largely they're a a bit of a mixture and and it does help. Because I remember watching this as a child and... The comedy and the light-hearted moments, they're the bits you felt safe in, but you didn't know when they were going to stop, and that's what gave it the tension. So these other films would build up tension just through the relentlessness of the atmosphere, whereas this builds up the tension by going, oh, it's a comedy now, but when's it going to turn back? Like like if you're spending time with somebody who has really bad mood swings and you... When they're in a good mood, that's nice, but you don't don't know when they're going to snap back into being in a really foul mood again. It's that sort of thing. That's it. You always have that tension because you know at some point it's going to change. And I love how it generally builds that sense of Particularly in that opening scene, there's a, a great sense of anxiety. Even though I, at the time of watching it, was somebody who lived in that sort of environment, you wouldn't want to be out in the middle of the countryside in a rainy night on your own and you don't know where you are and you just go to a really unfriendly pub and I like how again there's two levels to the acting because they're clearly nervous but they're trying not to seem nervous and they're singing Santa Lucia yes. sort of trying to not show fear in front of each other but it gets more and more whittled away the more spooked they get that's it and when they get to the you know when they're at the pub as well and they walk in and it's that you know, real sort of trope of everything going silent. <laughs> yes. You know, and they're like nice young American guys who are trying to be polite to everyone. But it really does have that that like tension of like, you are an outsider here and you are not welcome. And I should say in the country, actually, we're very nice people, really. <laughs> I did once walk into a pub in, in the city London and 
everything went quiet and everyone looked at me and my friend. Oh. And it was it was this very weird situation and we just turned around and left. Sometimes it's best to just be like, this isn't the place for me. <laughs> in cities, you've got choices. I think the thing in the countryside is that's the only place they can go. Maybe that pentangle was for something supernatural. Oh, I see. And they were too embarrassed to talk about it because they just felt so silly. <laughs> <laughs> they were ashamed. Yeah. Oh, please oh. don't rain. Oh, of course. Oh, David. Yes, I'm well aware of how pleasant the weather is in Rome at the present time. Thank you. Santa Lucia. Santa Lucia. Santa Lucia. Santa Lucia. It's a cold and a wet out of here. Trucks will be safe in the rain. Did you hear that? I heard that. What was it? Could be a lot of things. Yeah? A coyote. There aren't any coyotes in England. The Hound of the Baskervilles? Pecos Bill? Heathcliff. Heathcliff didn't howl. No, but he was on the moors. It's a full moon. Beware, Beware the, the moon. moon and stick to the road. Oops. I vote we go back to the slaughtered lamb. I think it's one of the best films for dream sequences. Dream sequences can, can be very hit or miss. Definitely, because it uses them, especially in the sort of first half or so. Maybe in that sort of middle third. It uses dream sequences a lot. And it uses them really effectively. Like, for some real scares as well. Some real, like, jump yes. scares. I particularly love the one... Uh, I've got a couple of notes about that scene, actually. The, the one where he's he's running fully clothed. So the first one, he's running naked through the woods. The second one, he's running fully clothed through the woods. And he comes to the hospital bed that's got him in it. Mm. And he sees himself in the hospital bed. And then there's the jump scare where he's got like a demon face and he hisses. And I'm I'm very fond of that because it made Mark McLean fall off the sofa. <laughs> I can see why. I can see why. My favourite one of those is there's a dream sequence where he is at home, back at home with his family. Mm. And then a group of sort of werewolf Nazis come in and attack and i think it's one of those scenes that a lot of people forget about because it doesn't necessarily fit in with everything else so much but that's great and then he wakes up and you've already seen him wake up from those other two dreams sort of bolt up in bed and this time he does that and jenny agatha playing alex the nurse she's there and then she goes to open the curtain and one of the werewolf nazis is behind the curtain and that is all that's the bit that makes me jump the most in that film, always. Yes. <laughs> if you're not paying attention, it's easy to forget, easy to forget that one, isn't it? Yeah, because you've, you've, you've seen him wake up. He's, you've set this pattern of his dreams and him waking up feeling very stressed about it. So it doesn't seem to be, in, you know, it's not one of those like, oh, he's obviously still in a dream moment. Yes, it's, it's a really good wrong, a really good fever dream wrong footing. And mm. you kind of, if you're, if you remember about it and you're conscious of it, you can kind of tell that the dialogue is a little off, which is really nicely done. Yeah, but it's subtle enough that if you're just 
if you're just sitting there thinking, oh, thank God that scary bit's enough. over. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, well, but what I also think about the bed in the forest scene, mm-hmm. I, th- I think it's, I've noted down three references to 2001 A Space Odyssey. One of them is overt and on record, and that is uh, See You Next Wednesday, which is the title of the porn film. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's John Landis's director's trademark, that in all of his films he would have some reference to See You Next Wednesday, which is a line from 2001, and that's an overt 2001 reference. Oh, yes, Frank, about your AGS-19 payments, I think I've straightened it out for you. I talked to the accounting office in Houston yesterday and they said that you should be receiving your higher rates of pay by next month. Well, Frank, I can't think of anything else to say oh, now. Oh, give our love today. Oh, yes, be sure and give my best regards. We wish you the very happiest of birthdays. God bless. All the best, son. Happy, Happy birthday to you. Happy, Happy birthday, birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Frank. Happy birthday to you. See you next Wednesday. But I think, whether consciously or subconsciously, the dream scene in which he's looking at himself lying in bed, that's very 2001. Yeah. That's, that mirrors a particular moment in 2001 very closely. Yeah, that's, it's an interesting moment as well, isn't it? Because he's, you know, he's got these sort of fears about what's happening and he's worried about his mental state and him standing outside and looking at himself there is... It's an interesting moment in the film. Yeah, it's that, all those dream things. It's one of the few times that dream sequences are used very subtly uh, as, as a way of conveying what the turmoil that's going on inside him, that he has got this change within him and there's a, there's a feverishness to it, that he's been infected by lycanthropy and this is a- affecting his dreams and what the things he's dreaming about and the fact that these nightmares are very vivid. So it gets a, across a lot, whereas, you know, a less interesting filmmaker might have him seeing the hospital psychiatrist and say, so what's what's been bothering you? And that kind of thing. And this is done very subtly with just entirely through these scenes, these dream scenes. Well, I'm on the, well, I've got the thought, my other potential 2001 reference, but it, this might just be in my imagination, is just the very first moment in the film where it fades up from black onto the Yorkshire scenery looks very similar to the fade up from black onto the uh, what actually is a backdrop on the you know the african desert scenery at the beginning just after the uh the opening planets montage or you know the opening planets conjunction alignment shot Mm -hmm. but that might just be it's a filmmaking thing it might just be it might just be me overthinking it it's hard to tell though isn't it you know maybe they saw that bit and were like oh this is perfect yes when it is somebody like john landis who like I say, his his director's trademark is a 2001 reference, so he clearly loves the film. So what else is in there? Can we see them? And you end up driving yourself a bit mad trying to find all <laughs> these, these parallels and connections. I'm going to come to another one of my questions on my list. Do you have a favourite scene? My favourite scene is in the porn cinema when David has, he's basically faced with all the people he's killed the night before and his friend Jack, who is now basically just a skeleton. And the reason I love it so much, and it was so hard to just pick one scene, but the reason I love it so much is because for me, it's the perfect balance of the really silly humour and also the horror in this film. Mm. Because, you know, he's sitting there surrounded by all these like 
dead people and they're all like Jack appearing as they died so they're all bloody and gory and gross but in the background there is this ridiculous porn film happening I'll see you next which is Wednesday. the most the most out and out comedy part of the whole film I think isn't it that's that's the the one part with actual silly gags I think because I think most of the humor mm-hmm. or the, I think the main gag of the film is the undead keep their personalities. That's the main yeah. source of humour, I think, isn't it? So Jack is the same as he used to be, but he's now a dead corpse who's slowly rotting. But he's still cheeky and cheery. Yeah, and he still really cares about his friend as well. He's yes. still, you know, cons- like he thinks his friend should kill himself because they need to break the curse and he doesn't want to wander the earth forever. But, you know, he's sort of been quite nice about it. And... Mm. There's a, like this yuppie couple who have died who are also very cheery while sort of still suggesting ways for, for David to die. Poison? Yeah. You could blow your head off. Yeah, and then you've got like there's the, the three tramps who are, who are a bit more annoyed and then there's the guy who gets killed in the underground who is, who is, to be fair, I think quite justifiably angry about it all. He's very chippy, isn't he? <laughs> but it's I, I just love that. And then in the background, every now and then it will cut over to this porn film which now I think about it, I probably shouldn't have been watching when I was like nine years old no. this film. But there's a, the, the moment that always strikes me is there's a bit when this, this big burly man walks into the room, says like, oh, you promised you'd never do this again. The man who has been involved in, in the sex turns around and be like, I don't know who you are. And the woman as well is just like, yeah, I don't know who you are either. And the man who's just yeah. walked in literally just goes, oh, I'm terribly sorry. I've, I've got the wrong like, what's I think the man says, I never promised you such a thing. And he said, not you, her. And she says, I don't know who you are. It's like, oh, sorry. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> it's so silly. And I like... It's very silly. That is my absolutely my sense of humour. I like just really silly things. Yeah. And everything that's funny in this scene is really silly. Like the, the yuppies who are being so like happy and jolly while mm. like covered in blood. And it, it's quite a heavy scene because David is really being confronted with what he's done and like the truth of you know not just being a werewolf but what that's doing to other people but also it's just really really daft and it perfectly balances all of those things and even the really heavy dialogue is like we are doomed to walk the earth unless the bloodline is severed there's the porn noises going on in the background and the cheesy 70s wah-wah music yeah it's it's genius all throughout the whole thing, because obviously the sun is setting again. And that scene sort of ends with David going into another transformation. And there's this, this like, creepy, pervy guy who's just standing there looking at him. I think, isn't he the usher who's, like... Because uh, he's transforming into a werewolf for the second time in the back row of this this porn cinema. Mm-hmm. I, I got the I I've always thought he was the kind of the usher that's come down to see what this guy's up to. I think he's, he's just, just one of the other people, because he's wearing, like, a... He's got like a flasher mac on. Yeah. All oh, right. Oh, he could be then. Oh, I'd, I'd already read him as the usher, but yeah, you never know. Do, do these theatres even have ushers? I've I've never been to one. I. Me neither. <laughs> me neither. Yeah. Certainly not in Piccadilly Circus. I know. Can you imagine? I don't, do you how... even get them anymore? I don't know. Like you just you look at the internet. That's it. I days. feel like that's what the internet's there for. Because it, it's so seedy. The thought of this <laughs> of just really sitting seedy. in this theatre, you know. I don't want to kink shame anyone if that's what you enjoy doing. Please carry on. But yeah, I think that's what the internet's for. Yes. But it's, yeah, like you say, it, it just suddenly turns. It 
goes from being one of the funniest scenes to one of the scariest and most claustrophobic of all the scenes. And actually, that comedy scene is the final funny bit in the film. Yeah. There's another five, ten minutes to go, but it's played entirely for mayhem and horror for the remainder of the film. There's no more gags left in it at all, unless I don't really think the policeman's head, you know, the um, detective sergeant's head coming off and rolling across the car bonnet is is a gag as such. No, I know what you mean. There are some moments of quite like over the top gore at the end, but. Yes. I think it's so caught up with everything else that's happening. It's yeah, it's definitely this is the last moment of just silliness. Now, who is it? I think it is the, it is Anusha or the box. I, th- I can't remember if it's the box office lady or Anusha who's going down, or is it, it's maybe the policeman. I think it's the policeman who comes in, and he's going down the aisle with the torch, and the torch, the torch beam rests upon the wolf, the dog thing, yeah, the creature. That's an actual really good horror moment because also that's the first time we've had a really good look at Mm. the creature and i think that is such you know an example of why this is a really good horror film as well is that you don't see the wolf you don't see the werewolf until right at the end so you have a lot of like flashes of things and you know bits dashing by and you see sort of gore splattering up but that is the first time you get a proper, like, full-on shot of the werewolf. Because it's all done pretty much like his initial rampage in the middle of the film. It's all pretty much done through sounds and a bit of POV stuff. Yeah. And people's reactions. And the only bit where you actually see the monster is a, is in the underground, the very long shot, just right at the top of frame, just the little, the tiny figure that you can't quite make out of the monster crawling in from the top of frame as he's as the businessman, uh, whose name I forget, Gerald Bringsley. I didn't forget it, I remembered. (laughs) As he's kind of backing onto the escalator and you see the tiny little thing and that's really creepy. That is really creepy. Especially when I was younger, you know, living in London and going on the underground, I used to hate it when it was very busy and you're sort of going down the underground Mm. you could see all those people really crowded in. And I, I remember sort of that shot and thinking like, because obviously he's he's escaping, he's on the escalator going away, but it's that sense that you haven't escaped, that it's right there and Yes. Oh yeah. Great shot. And and as as a non London person who's never lived in London, if ever I'm on the underground and it's just and the platform is suddenly deserted, especially if it's mm-hmm. Tottenham Court Road on the northern line, which is where, where that scene is set, mm-hmm. I'm always a bit like, Oh no. This is it. This Uh-oh. is the day the werewolf gets me. <laughs> I can assure you this is not in the least bit amusing, I should say. <laughs> but yes, the, the, the horror and the atmosphere are played absolutely straight. And I think this is where a lot of horror comedies fall down, is they try and make the hor- horror funny and fun. Yeah. You need and obviously to see horror, horror generally should be fun, but fun in that kind of light-hearted way they try for, and it doesn't usually play very well, does it? No, you need, you need to let your horror be scary. Mm. And let your comedy be funny. And if you put the two of them next to each other, they will balance each other perfectly. And that's what yes. this film does. Why I love it so much. And you you need atmosphere as well because this mm. has a this has a, a weird mournful atmosphere. And the music's very mournful, like it doesn't have comedy film music. No, that's true. And I think that's something that's quite typical in werewolf films because they're mm. generally they're generally really tragic because you've yes. normally got someone who 
has either inherited it or, you know, as in the case of an American werewolf in London, gets attacked out of nowhere and then they're having to deal with this curse. And normally the only thing that you can do to stop them is for them to die. So, yeah, they quite often are quite sad. And I like that this, yes. you know, with along with the horror and the comedy, it does have that sense of sort of tragedy and that sense of foreboding all the way through. It does, right from the start. It, I forget who did the music. It's quite a big name. Is it Elmer Bernstein? It's somebody like that. Some, one of the sort of big name composers did the music. I, I forget who it is exactly. It's quite old-fashioned, but in a good way. It's it's not 80s yeah. film music. It's, it feels more early 70s. It, it, the music's a lot like um, Don't Look Now and that kind of mournful strings. And... Yeah, which I think has helped it to not age as badly as it might have otherwise. Yes. Because a lot of these 80s horror films will have a lot of, you know, the, the phasey synthesizer music. Yeah. Uh, which, if you're John Carpenter, is brilliant, but a lot of them don't get away with it if they're not John Carpenter. Well, that's it. I went to see the new Firestarter film which is fine um, but the music's all done by John Carpenter and so it oh, feels like you're watching like a 1980s horror and it just gives it the yeah. whole atmosphere that just elevates the film beyond what it might have been otherwise he should do more music I think so I think my favourite scene in the film I, I had three to choose from mm-hmm. uh, it was either Tottenham Court Road scene mm-hmm. the underground scene or the Nazis Nazis monsters scene yeah. dream of the, the the Nazi monsters bursting into the house, which I think I'm particularly fond of. Fond of is a weird word for Nazi <laughs> monster scene. But I, I have particularly good memories of that because I think when I watched it at the time with Mark, that was the scariest of all the scenes because it's so full on. It's so full on. It It's so, because you have that, you know, it starts as this is lovely, you know, domestic scene of mm. David back at home. It's, it, it's really shocking but also i feel like it's the scene that most people forget yes it creeps up on you it's like mm. oh yeah it's it's like it's the only scene set in america yeah uh and it's and it is just this lovely domestic scene of this fa- middle class family they've got a nice big house uh the kids i think they're lying on their front coloring and they're watching the uh, muppet show so it's the, the second appearance of frank oz mm-hmm. he gets to play miss piggy and the rather cranky american uh not the ambassador, is he? But he's some American diplomat type mm. official character. I can't remember the, the name for him. And there's a ring on the doorbell, and the dad goes to answer it, and then just this a sudden explosion of horror and violence. And yeah, it's f- shocking because it's completely out of context for the rest of the film. And I think the scene also gives the film an interesting extra psychological layer because it's not really a part of the story, the fact that. David is Jewish and he comes from a Jewish family. But it's just a subtle psychological thing, I think, that this is hovering around in his subconscious. And when he's having these fever dreams, it's about Nazis arriving at his family home. Yeah, this lovely middle class home in America. And the whole family's there and they're doing cosy American things and watching TV and then... then the soldiers turn up. So it's almost like a short film within a film, this psychological anxiety. So I think that's really interesting. What was your third one then that you've gone for? Um, so the one I've gone for, I mean, I'd, I'd like to go for a really obscure scene and people go, oh yeah, that, uh, but no, I've gone for the transformation scene. Yeah, to be fair, if, if <laughs> the notes I have written down, I basically, 
at one point that was written down on like everything and I was like you you'll talk about it Alex you don't have to talk about it all the time because it is the best werewolf transformation scene of all time it is and it's one of the it's possibly the only one I've seen and certainly I would say it's the first one in cinema there is a scene about what it feels like to turn into a werewolf whereas all the others before that and most of them since would be like look this is what it looks like when somebody turns into a werewolf and this is this is what it feels like this is how painful it is it's so well done for that and you know with all the just rick baker is an absolute genius and basically everyone who has done werewolf transformation scenes after this so many of them are just copying it but yeah you can feel it happening and I know, there's a, did you ever watch Being Human? No, no, I didn't actually. Oh, you should, it's so good. But with that, when they're talking about the werewolf and he's sort of saying, you know, you feel every bone in your body break and like reform. Yes, that's got to be a reference to this, hasn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, you see that happen here and you hear it happen and, it, it, you know, they don't need to sort of tell you anything. It's all there on the screen and in, in the sounds that you're hearing obviously no digital effects no optical effects it's all done with the puppetry and makeup and hydraulics so it's all everything that's happening is happening in front of the camera there's no no post-production involved at all except for the sound so i think a large part of it is also the, the sound design which gives yeah. it that kind of visceral bones popping and cracking kind of feel but uh, yeah everything visual is is all rick baker's work but his makeup work but makeup doesn't really do it justice because it is you know hydraulics and things actually moving and prop hands the fingers actually extending and yeah it's brilliantly done and they've done such a good job with making it every there's a lot of bits you like you see his face grow you see bits Mm. you know stretch out and it all looks like skin and i've seen this like on a really big like i've seen this in the cinema now and I've seen it on like big fancy HD TVs and it still looks really good. Like it, it's absolute magic. It you really feel like it's really happening and and I think there are so many other I mean probably the 80s is a good time because you didn't have the sort of computer effects as much. So you had to do this but there's definitely a lot of films in like the late 90s early 2000s where they use computer effects because that was the new exciting thing. Yes. But it looks terrible now, whereas this is like, that man's turning into a werewolf. There's a lot of really great stuff they can do with CG, but something this visceral, I think you can't beat physical effects. For me, this is just perfect. There's there's no bit of it where I think, oh, you can see a bit too much how that's done. or Because even when you know how it's done it still looks so convincing. It, it's the thing to tell yourself during the film. It's like, it's just an effect. It's just yeah. a special effect, honestly. That's it. It's not really happening. It's not really happening. It's not, like, those noises aren't real. It's fine. It's all fine. <laughs> I also like the cutaway to Mickey Mouse just impassively watching. Which is so, yeah, it's so weird. It's so sort of creepy because... It makes it look as if Mickey Mouse is sort of giving him the side eye a little bit and is looking quite scared. (laughs) It's just this little toy. I don't know if it's a reference to Jack because in the earlier meeting before when he was talking to Jack in this is this is all happening in Alex's apartment in London her excessively fancy for a nurse she has an incredibly fancy Pimlico apartment beautiful apartment 
<laughs> in what appears to be Kensington. It's somewhere. I did write down whereabouts it is. Uh, it, it is central London somewhere. It's, I think the outside is Kensington and the, the inside is Earl's Court. Right. But yeah, I, she would not be able to afford that nowadays. Not on her own. No. Certainly. She'd need 20-odd housemates to afford that place. <laughs> I looked at one of the wide shots when I was watching it this time round and I noticed the, the, the set design. She has a thing for those Disney characters. So there's, there's several Mickey and Minnie's around and there's a mm, there's Goofy a and a Donald. Duck. Yes. I think... So she has a thing for those. Which I don't think they ever actually reference it, but I think what they're doing is... Because one of the problems I have with the film nowadays is she becomes quite obsessed with David while he's unconscious and then is very willing to bring this guy who is hallucinating like <laughs> back into her house. Yeah. But I, I, she obviously has a real like interest or, you know, slight obsession with American things. And I feel like him being oh, American yes. to her is in itself attractive and interesting. You could be right, because obviously being into American things these days, there's, there's such cross-cultural pollination. But yeah. it wouldn't have been such a thing in 81. This is this is pre-ET even, I think, or around about the time of E.T. is when yeah, we really E.T.'s started 82. to get obsessed with American culture. Or culture. Was, when we really went for Halloween in a big way was, uh, I think, as a result of E.T. So, yeah, I think you could be right. That could be a, a subtle bit of characterisation there. Yeah, I just I like to try and find an, an excuse. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought of that, but that is good. But one of the things I like about the cutaway to... Mickey Mouse and it's a thing they do in that crops up in The Shining as well because you see lots of Roadrunner cartoons and mm-hmm. like I think I think Danny's Jumper has a Mickey Mouse on it or some kind of cartoon character I think there's something about these characters or designs or toys or whatever cartoons that are supposed to be reassuring and fun in the context of extreme horror and discomfort and they can't help you like Mickey Mouse yeah. is there, but he can't help you. He can't make. He can't take you to Mickey Mouse World. But he's just there, and he hasn't changed. He's still grinning. And he's still happy, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, which then makes it quite disturbing or eerie. I guess is the right word. Yes, there's that eeriness to it. Yeah, because you're right. Because he's still, he's still happy. Yeah, he he isn't. He hasn't transformed into horrified Mickey Mouse. He's still happy, Mickey Mouse, like he's any other time. And it gives it that air of normality as well. So. It, it kind of fixes it in our own domestic thing because, you know, most of the people would... We've all had toys around at some age in our lives and Absolutely. all those kind of little knickknacks from our home. And if, if we did transform into a werewolf in our home, then all those knickknacks would still be there in the presence of it. Yeah, and it's it's one of the things I do really like about Alex's flat is that it it looks like a real flat. It's not full of all the, like latest 80s furniture no it looks like it's all a bit you know secondhand and you know it all looks comfy there's like crocheted rugs and a horrible floral bedroom horrible floral bedroom with <laughs> a, a picture right next to the bed i'm assuming of maybe like her dad when he was in the oh, army really? which ah. yeah just she things like that you don't need well, right next to your she? bed does she have film posters and again i think if you're designing it now for 1981 you would have, you know, Empire Strikes Back or Jaws or something like that. But I think she has sort of quite classic film posters. But I can't. I should have written down which ones. But that rings a bell that she has possibly much older films. Yeah. On her wall, she's quite an interesting character, though. I think she's she's not just 
the love interest. No, absolutely. And I think the fact that she's quite proactive in the relationship as well, mm. I think is good, especially for the time. And, you know, she's a, she's a professional. She's, she's good at her job. Yeah, she's not just some, you know, ditzy woman he's picked up, which I think a lot of other 1981 films would have characterised a yeah. lot more. She would have been damseled a lot more. And actually yeah, she's, she's not damseled really, at all, is she? Never. She has that scene with Benjamin... Little Benjamin, who just says no all the time. The little boy just says no. And she says to him, have you ever been severely beaten around the face and neck? Which I think is a brilliant line. Also, my my nan was a nurse, and I can absolutely imagine her saying that to a child who just kept saying no all the time. (laughs) I thought very realistic. (laughs) She's a fun character. I mean, she doesn't have like a big, bold character defining you know one character defining thing but none of them really do and i think that makes it feel a lot more realistic as well that you can't really say i mean you could sort of say jack's the funny one and Mm -hmm. but they're both sort of banter when they're together he's the funny one he's the serious one she's the she's the cute one yeah they all feel refreshing they feel like Mm. real people and they interact in sort of real people ways which which again keeps it grounded, and then makes yes. that makes the horror again all the more scary for feeling like it's happening in the real world. And I do think probably seventy percent of the comedy is just Jack and David talking to each other. It's just the things they say to each other is sort of quite funny. Absolutely, because all the way through it feels like a real friendship from them walking along in what's meant to be the moors to to Jack as a skeleton. They always feel like these are people who have known each other forever. Yes. I mean, I think they're supposed to be maybe late teens. I think they're school kids or maybe in a gap year. Yeah, I can never quite certain whether they're in a gap year before university or mm. if they've just graduated from university. Because they're talking about Debbie Klein and I get the feeling they're all classmates yeah. Possibly at high school. They've obviously known, yeah, they've known her since forever. Because she's a mediocre person, but there's nothing mediocre about Debbie Klein's body. No. This I mean, I did feel that, that that interaction is one that probably hasn't dated as well. <laughs> but I think it's realistic. To be fair, two guys on their own. Mm. Two young guys on their two own. Two young bucks. Yeah. So David Norton is 30. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, Griffin Dunn is 26 and Jenny Agatha's 29. I think they're all playing a lot younger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, that's okay, really fun. So- Do you know, I don't think I'd ever... I think because like, when I watched it, I was like nine and anyone who was older than 20 was like, well, they're just a grown-up. When I was quite young and when The Young Ones was on, I couldn't really work out why it was called The Young Ones because they all seem quite old to me. And actually, I think they are. I think they're all about, le- they're all late 20s. <laughs> like, why are they called The Young Ones? It's funny that I remember being, and I must have been about like five or six, and some 18-year-olds came into school. I don't know if they were doing like work experience or something. And I remember just thinking, wow, they're, they're like proper grown-ups. Yeah. <laughs> Apologies to any 18-year-olds listening, but you're not. So, mind you, I remember thinking. I remember when I thought ten was grown up. <laughs> it's like, oh, when I get to ten, I'll have it all sorted out. I said, when you hit thirteen and you're a teenager, then everyone's going to respect you. <laughs> yes, be the big man around town. <laughs> yes, I did write down where she lives. She lives on Redcliffe Square in Olympia. 
very nice. Uh, here's a Beatles fact. I always get in a Beatles fact where I can. This is where a guy who's a Guinness Air, Tara Brown, uh, was killed in a car crash just off that street and that's where the line he blew his mind out in a car comes from in day in their life so that was just just a few meters away from where they come in through the front door apparently so there's a bit of a grim <laughs> a grim beatles fact for <laughs> a you to fittingly go fittingly grim beatles it's, fact. i think it's fittingly grim yeah oh yes i think the only other overt comedy thing is uh the character of sergeant mcmanus played by paul kember Who's sort of, he's a bit of an Inspector Clouseau character. Yeah, and you know, this is another weird thing. Like, the things that I forget in between, and, and his character is one of those ones that always some, seems very fresh to me. For some reason, I never mm. remember it. But it's Because he's the only one playing it for comedy. Yeah, absolutely. Everyone else is playing it straight. And even Jack, who has the comedy lines and is the funny character, he's still playing it as himself and as a, as a believable teenager. But it's this this detective sergeant character who's, you know, the, he's the, the sidekick of the gruff, grumpy, I don't know what rank the other guy is, the guy who gets his head bitten off later. Yeah. This poor mustachioed young fellow who's just a bit wet and bumbling and very Inspector Clouseau. And he drops the kidney dishes and there's a whole long thing of him trying to reassemble the kidney dishes in order and it's all very awkward and he's just a little bit sad. So there's a bit where he goes to leave the room and he's been talking to Alex and the other doctor whose name I've completely forgotten. And he, um, like, yeah, his his inspector or super, like, senior person has already left and sort of closed the door behind him and then he sort of turns like, we're gonna, we're gonna catch him, don't worry. And then has to go and like reopen the door, and it's just really yeah. awkward, but it's really funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, it, he is one I always forget as well. He's just a little treat. It's like, oh yeah, that guy, yeah. Doctor Hirsch. That's John John Woodvine's Doctor Hirsch. Doctor Hirsch is such an interesting character because he actually does all the kind of legwork in discovering what's going on. This is one of my notes. He's. Yeah, he's the co-lead character. He's the co-protagonist, isn't he? Yeah, and it, it's so interesting because obviously, you know, David finds out what's happening from Jack. But yeah, Dr. Hirsch is the one he actually, you know, he goes to Yorkshire, he talks to the people in the pub and he sort of rationalises it all. Because obviously, you know, they're not going to just believe that he's a werewolf, but he does also say if he believes that he's going to transform, then he might do something to hurt himself or others. And I I love his character and I love the way he's, you know, he doesn't just dismiss everything. He sort of takes it on in a way that he understands, which I think, you know, quite often when you get, you know, he could have just been a kind of like stuffy doctor character who just goes, oh, this is all just nonsense. Yes. But he doesn't. If you were writing this script, having been to, you know, having been on a screenwriting course, mm-hmm. you would have david doing all that stuff he would be the one investigating he'd be the one going back to yorkshire and saying what happened you know what happened to my friend so i think it's really refreshing and interesting to have what is essentially a secondary character doing all that stuff yeah because it gives all this time for david to sort of be dealing with his feelings with it to build his Mm. relationship with alex and and to have everything that's happening with um jack but then you still get, you know, that quite old-fashioned investigative side of it. I think John Landis was 18 when he wrote the script, apparently. Really? And oh. I think possibly that lack of experience helped because it, it, it were it a more experienced and older screenwriter. And I'm sure he probably went did a few drafts 
since you know before he shot it i imagine it wasn't all his entirely his writing from when he's 18 but you never know but i think yeah a more experienced screenwriter would probably do a more conventional structure and the ending as well i mean the ending is just totally structurally not something anyone would do but works brilliantly yeah because i love i mean it's quite kind of you know in some ways the typical werewolf ending of like Mm. the werewolf he said but you don't then have there's not a conversation you don't have a bit like at the end of psycho where they tack on that bit where they're like let's talk about what's wrong with norman bates (laughs) like you don't have like it was a werewolf all along it literally just ends but everyone's seen it everyone's Mm. seen what's happened but you don't get some pointless epilogue of people going, werewolves are real. No, the very last thing is just Alex crying. Like she's distraught and that's the end of the film. Then you get the the um, the Marcel's going, bing, ding, ding, bing, dong, dong. That's <laughs> the like, happiest oh, version of sudden, that song. I know. <laughs> yeah, because I think normally in a, in a film like that, you would have, she's the, you know, the main surviving character. You just have Alex and Dr. Hirsch, You'd have a scene with them and he'd be comforting her and she'd go, oh, well, you know, I, I loved him. But, you know, it's all worked out for the best and we've severed the bloodline and it all's fine. And then it would end like with a furry hand at the window or some ridiculous gag to yeah. see us into the thing. But it does just stop. Just stops. <laughs> yeah, it's just like, yep, yeah, that's the end of the film. Bye. Yeah. Where was a real everybody end of film? Get out to the cinema, go home. Now we're going to play the happiest song you've ever heard. <laughs> Which I love, yes. Yes, yeah, speaking of the songs, so we've got, th- they're all, as I said before, they're all moon related. So we've got three versions of Blue Moon. Mm-hmm. We have um, Moon Dance by Van Morrison. The, the less said about him, the better, mm-hmm. frankly. And Bad Moon Rising by Credence Clearwater Revival. And I just wanted to mention that because this is, th- watching this film is what made me a Credence Clearwater Revival fan. I, I mean, I can't say I've listened to a lot of their thing, but that song is great and works you know as with all the music it all i think we already said this everything is the right song in the right place in this film it works perfectly doesn't it perfectly and i like now watching it at home where i can sing along to everything without annoying people (laughs) and i like that whole scene i mean it's ostensibly the most boring scene in the film but deliberately because he's bored it's him Mm -hmm. uh at her house just hopping through all these really seedy adverts on tv about Naughty Nina. Naughty Nina reveals all in the news of the world That's and the darts. Such, and... Is that a real advert? I, you know, I was watching it in preparation for this and having this moment of like, this that just seems like a real advert that could just have been real. I think she was certainly a real person, apparently. I can't. I did look it up and I can't remember whether it was a real advert, but she, Naughty Nina's definitely a real person. Oh, <laughs> she's, yeah. she's very... So that is another thing from the 80s that's disappeared is these sort of topless page three model naughty naughty nina samantha fox sort of characters yeah and i think it has gone more to reality tv stars and, and everyone sort of says reality tv stars what's happened to culture and it's but in the 80s it was <laughs> the equivalent was topless models from page three yeah that's it it's just it's it's shifted it's not really changed and if anything i think like the reality stars can often have a bit more i've forgotten the word not motivation agency yeah i think that i don't really watch any of those sort of reality those kind of what do they call it constructed reality yes no i don't but 
I do watch a lot of the other shows that those people end up on, like, you know, Strictly and MasterChef and stuff. And it's interesting how many of the people from things like Made in Chelsea or TOWIE or those things actually come across really well when they're on those things because they're actually really hardworking and, you know, they're very ambitious. They've decided this is the thing that they want to do. And actually, you know, they're really going for it. And I mean, I'm not going to start watching any of those constructive reality <laughs> things. But um, yeah. And they're generally quite, they they're generally quite, quite TV savvy, aren't they? By the, yeah. They're quite TV experienced by that stage. Because it is, like you say, constructed reality. So they have storylines and stuff going on, apparently. I, yes, like say, it's, it's, it's not anything I've ever watched. I don't think my brain can handle that. I like my real <laughs> things real and my fake things fake. Yes. When it gets blurred in the middle, I'm like, this is giving me a headache. I just, I can't cope. A line I wrote down that um, David saying to Jack when he's in a state of decomposition, I will not be threatened by a walking meatloaf, which when I was 10 was just the funniest thing. <laughs> I think as well, when I first heard that, I I think the only meatloaf I had reference for was the singer. <laughs> so it just sort of didn't make any sense. Because obviously, like, meatloaf is walking meatloaf. <laughs> I don't think I knew what like actual like meatloaf the food was. Oh yes, we also get uh, a glimpse. Uh, just going back to the ropey eighties TV, we also get a glimpse of Test Card F. Yeah, the, the girl with clown classic, which is the classic of again, yeah, again a thing you never see. I mean, you do see it a lot now. You just never see it in its original context, but you still see it around a lot. Um, but it's always lovely to see that crop up. Yeah, that that was a, a great moment. We get the old mirror routine. Uh, which is a line from Head, the monkey's film. There's always a, a film, a, a bit in films where there's the medicine cab- cabinet mirror that's slightly ajar, so you push it closed and you see the figure behind you. Which uh, is always which terrifying. Is... It always gets me. I always yes. <laughs> which is described by um, Peter Talk in the monkey's film Head as, ah, the old mirror routine. <laughs> My favourite uh, so monkey. So it's nice to see that one turn up. Yeah, good old Peter. So, yes, I've asked you about your favourite scene, but do you have a favourite moment? Because that's the thing I like in films, it's not just scenes, but a moment where you go, oh, yes, that's good. What do you know? So the, there are two moments that are sort of related, and one of them is actually during the werewolf transformation scene. There, there are two moments where, well, at one point it's David and Jack, but then during the werewolf transformation scene, obviously it's just David, looks straight into the camera. Ah. And they're so effective because the, the first bit is the two of them when the wolf is surrounding them and they're on the moors and it's it's like they're looking at you and asking for help. Both times it's like you, as the viewer, are being asked for help. I think mean, the, oh, yeah. the werewolf scene, he like looks, I think he stretches his hand out and it's this real moment of like, I am in pain, can you help me? And obviously as someone who is watching it, you can't do anything, but it just... Those two moments are so good because they draw you into the action so much and they make you feel his pain and it makes you feel their fear even more than you were already. Just that little sort of breaking of the fourth wall moment. I'm like, yeah, I just just love them. And it's it's only those two times. I think my favourite moment, we sort of touched touched on the two bits either side of it, but it's it's, the second scene with... Alex and little Benjamin. No! When she she says to him, have you ever been severely beaten about the face and neck? No! I thought not. Then the camera pans up to the window and it's night time. You see the moon. Mm-hmm. And then the strings from the Sam Cooke version of Blue Moon creep start to creep in. Go, oh, 
Oh yes, it's the transformation. So it's what heralded that that scene, and it happens very quickly. You saw me standing alone without a dream. So then you cut to her apartment, and he's just reading the book. And within like a second or two, he just drops the book and starts screaming. It's so with this beautiful lush been, music playing. He's been sort of waiting to see if it's going to happen. Yes. And not quite believing it. And yeah, you get that mute that the music comes in and you go back to him still bored. Mm. And then but just for 2 out. seconds. Yeah. And then it, it all kicks off. And it's so sudden like he goes straight from reading to screaming. There's no like uh-oh or ooh, ow, oh no. Yeah, there's, there's no build up towards it getting more sore. It's just <laughs> more painful. It just goes straight into being from nothing to agony. Yeah. But it's just that moment that the, the strings come in. That bit of music is what heralds that quite traumatic scene with the whole murder spree. Oh, I wanted to talk about some of the uh, the actors as well. Because there's quite, quite an interesting cast, it's isn't it? It's amazing. And especially, you know, the scene at the beginning in the pub is, you know, fantastic. You've got Rick Mail, who I don't, I think maybe sort of laughs at one point. I don't think he has any actual lines. Yeah, I think he's background. I don't think he's even, I think he wasn't, he's not an actor in it. I think he's a, he's an extra, isn't he? He's credited as like chess player number two. Oh, that's right. Yes, he does have a credit, doesn't he? But yeah, but that's it. But Brian Glover, always amazing. That's enough! Perfect. David Schofield, you yes. made me miss. Like, <laughs> Just that whole, all of them in that pub. And um, Lila Kay is the landlady. I was watching something. I was watching Nuns on the Run the other day and I was thinking, why does she look so familiar, that nun? And of course, it's Lila Kay from the from behind the bar. Plays one of the nuns in Nuns on the Run. Does she? I haven't watched that for so long. <laughs> she plays the alcoholic nun. Oh. Who's got the little secret bottle under her pillow. She's She's great. I mean, she's great at this. And just mm. everyone in that scene has sort of so much sort of power in that moment of, ugh, you know, here are these people, these outsiders, and then just wanting them to go away and so they can carry on living their life, but then that feelings of guilt that they have as well. And Yeah, of course, uh, Brian Glover and Rick Mayle would be neighbours in Bottom, so they would turn up together again. Of course they do. Oh. Brian Glover's the terrifying neighbour. Yeah. Brian Glover does a very good terrifying... He's one of those actors that could be really cuddly or mm. terrifying. Like he's very, he was very good at playing both. He could be the Tetley Tea Man, or he could be the insane neighbour. Yeah, you could. He was either going to give you a hug, or he was going to kill you. Yes, <laughs> nowhere in between. Yeah, David Norton leads the film extremely well, and he wasn't in very much. Really? I think back in those days, being in horror films kind of marginalised you a bit, maybe. That's it. And I, so I, when I watched it recently, I watched it with my brother, and he went, oh, David Norton's not really done anything else. And I was sitting there going, oh, I've seen him in loads of things. And then I realised that they were all horror films, <laughs> and they were nearly all things where he was sort of, he was basically in it because he's David in American Werewolf in London. Yes. I once held a door open for him. Did you? That's exciting. Yes. Was he lovely? Yeah, Did was, he say thank you? Um, he probably did. I didn't interact with him other than that. Yeah, it was back when I lived in Milton Keynes and we used to have uh, Collector Mania there. So you'd have all the, you know, the, the cult stars would turn up. And they do it in the, um, like the sports stadium now, but it used to be just in the main shopping centre. 
Oh, in I've Middleton got... Hall, where I've it been would there. just be crammed. Oh, really? Ah, oh, you've been to that one. I have. So you could just go around and uh, you know, you'd be in John Lewis, and there's Andy Circus. That's <laughs> exciting. I remember just walking along, and there was Mary Tam and Tom Baker having a ciggy. Oh wow! Together, that was rather cute. But yeah, I opened a door and held open for this American man in a nice uh overcoat and it was david norton that is very exciting looking very american that's what he does very well it's one yes. of the reasons he's very good in this <laughs> speaking of looking very american uh john landis the director has a cameo as as the guy being knocked through a window by a car which is uh, and... a great moment actually yeah, speaking of good moments because that whole <laughs> end bit is so chaotic <laughs> But he's the most American-looking person in the entire film. Like everyone looks at kind of really grey and dowdy, early eighties British, and he's got the long hair and the beard, and he's wearing like a bandana, and he's got his denim flares on, and he looks like he's he, he's straight from the California sunshine. Absolutely, <laughs> so he's playing a tourist. Which I think the good thing at least having something in central London is you can get away with that. Yes, Griffin Dunn, of course, plays Jack. He. Uh, He's not somebody you've seen a lot of things, but he turned up in a film called After Hours, which is a Martin Scorsese film. So he's one of the few people who isn't either Robert De Niro or Leo DiCaprio who has been the protagonist of a Martin Scorsese film. That's very many exciting. Yeah, because he has to do essentially like voice acting, physical acting. Mm. You know, he has to act where you can see his face, act where he's like half covered up, and then just be, I'm assuming, the voiceover the puppet of his skeleton and he keeps that character like you know that that's jack all the way through yes and the funny thing is even though it's clearly a puppet and it looks like a puppet but also you never think of it as a puppet because he does such a good job of yeah giving it character it's just oh it's still jack yeah and it's like oh jack's looking really oh this bit where he's very green and that was a bit that always disturbed <laughs> yes. me the most but yeah it's still yes, jack. And he turns up the second time and he's quite green first time he's quite fresh still the first Second time, time he's green. there is a bit on his neck yes, that just like wobbles bit. around whenever he talks <laughs> and it's just the grossest thing I've ever seen. And it's so uh, perfect because one of the things that's so good with the makeup is that they manage to make it look like there's things missing and it's all very gooey and wet and then there's that one bit of skin that just keeps flapping around and it's just horrible. It's perfect. Yes. <laughs> Somebody I want to mention is an actor called Peter Ellis, who plays the uh, the Bobby on the beat at Trafalgar Square, who David tries to get him arrested, himself arrested by. He went on to play Chief Superintendent Brownlow in the Bill for years. For so he years. was the head of Sun, Sun Hill Police Station in the Bill. So I like to think that the Bill, I like to think he's the same character and that the Bill and American Werewolf in London take place in the same universe. Oh, oh yeah, I fully support that. So he's the most laid-back police officer ever. Like, this guy's coming up to you and ranting and raving, and he's just like, come along now, calm down, move along. (laughs) It's that kind of calm which uh, helped him rise up through the ranks to become chief superintendent. That's what it was. At at an East End police station. He didn't get where he was by overreacting to crazy (laughs) Becoming hysterical. No, Reg Hollis could learn a thing or two. Also, Michael Carter, whose other famous role is in Return of the Jedi as Bib Fortuna. Oh! He's the businessman victim on the underground. Oh my gosh! Oh, you're blowing my mind. 
<laughs> I'm going to watch this again, and then I'm going to watch Return of the Jedi again. <laughs> they're, they're quite... That's range. That is <laughs> They're quite different characters. Again, he's an actor that's not... I think he's he's quite a theatre actor. So he wasn't in a huge amount of things. Or, you know, probably was in the bill and doctors as everyone is. <laughs> but that's his two memorable roles. And that's not bad, is it? That's not bad. Jeffrey Burridge, he played quite a big role in Blake 7. Uh, he played a character called Dorian. So fans of that era of TV will remember... Jeffrey Burridge playing Dorian in Blake 7. He owned the second spaceship that the uh, Blake 7 gang nicked off of him. Uh, he plays one of the two yuppies that gets mauled. Okay. I have to confess, I have never actually watched Blake 7. Please uh, please carry on speaking like, to me, Adam. <laughs> if, if, if you like Doctor Who... Which, which I do. Which you do. I think, I think there's a lot to enjoy in it. So, is there a bit, a moment or an element you could really do without... And then you don't have to have an answer for this because some films... That's it. There's not really... I mean, I think there are things... The the conversation about Debbie... What's her name? Debbie, Debbie Klein. Klein. Debbie Klein. And just the the speed with which Alex is like, yeah, David, come back to my house. I feel uh, have not necessarily aged well and don't make sense. But in fact, the note that I wrote is, she's like a nurse in a porn <laughs> film. <laughs> Because <laughs> it's just like she's feeding him the things. Just, there are some weird moments there. But, you know, it's a film that doesn't waste any time. So I don't really want to see a very long montage of them getting to know each other either. So, you no. know. So there's not necessarily, yeah, keep it all, keep it all. There's a great bit of acting she does. The bit where she is plucking up courage to ask him back to her flat. Mm. And you can see the thoughts going through her head. I love Jenny Agatha. Yes, she's so good. Because there's another bit when... The, the, I think the police are in talking to, to Dr. Hirsch and she's just on the other side of the door and she's sort of going like, oh no, I'm going to have to like admit that he's at my house. And you, know, and you can see her being sort of stressed out about it. And be, because it's this emergency situation, no one is really judging and no one really says anything. But... There is this moment of her obviously thinking, am I going to lie about this or not? And I think that's a sign of a really good actor is when you can see those thought processes. Mm. And not in a big way, it's just just so natural. I think there isn't a bit I could do without, but there is one bit that always pulls me out of the film. Mm -hmm. And it's that little schoolboy and his acting. Oh, but then he has that line of, a naked American man stole my balloons, (laughs) (laughs) which I want on a T-shirt. What? I want that on a t-shirt. Little boy with the balloons. Come over here. If you come over here, I'll give you a pound. Two pounds. I don't know who you are. I'm uh, the famous balloon thief. Why would a thief want to give me two pounds? Here, I'll explain it to you. Thank you. Yes, sir? A naked American man stole my balloon. I think he's a really charming part of the film, but the fact that he can't act for Toffee... No. Uh, and apologies to him, he's probably about about, about my age now. Um, it, it does kind of pull you out of the reality of it a bit. Yeah. But I wouldn't take I think, it out. As far as I know, 
he has not gone on to a great <laughs> acting career. So no, I, think... I would imagine he's he's got, found a much more fulfilling career for himself. But yeah, that is possibly my favourite line from the whole film. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it wouldn't be the same if it was somebody who could act. Rufus Deakin. There you go. There's his name. Um, which, as far as I know, he is in one other film. Speaking of such things, who wins your award for outstanding person in front of the camera? I mean, this was really hard because, I mean, as we said, everyone's amazing. But for me, it has to be Griffin Dunn as Jack Goodman. Everything I've said, he's he just makes their friendship feel so realistic despite being dead for most of the film. being dead and gross looking for most of the film he just makes it like and and that friendship his concern for david while at the same time being like but you do have to kill yourself because i don't want to be trapped Mm. in purgatory forever neither do all these other lovely people it just it, it really makes it and i probably could have chosen just about anybody but i think he just for me as well because he is so part of that like horror element. It, yeah, that that's my choice. Griffin Dunn. Also, I just love his name, Griffin Dunn. It's a great name, isn't it? Yeah, I, I think I, for, for me, any of the four leads, uh, mm-hmm. and I think one we haven't mentioned by name is John Woodvine, who plays Doctor Hirsch. So it's, it's worth mentioning the actor's yeah. name. He's still he's nineties now. He's still around. Yeah, and he's he's great. Yes, he's great. But I think I will just play it straight down the line and say David Norton because he's. A relatively new actor, and he carries a film very confidently. And again, he seems he feels like a real character. He feels like a mm. real person, which, and I think that's so hard to do. That scene where he's in the phone box and has to call home and speak to his little sister, and that's he's so good. So yeah, good choice. And he's likable, which is yeah. a tricky thing to pull off, <laughs> but, yeah. particularly for that character who has to play like quite a confident American, which could particularly in the 80s could could rub one up the wrong way if played wrongly yeah because he's obviously reasonably you know he's from a nice family he's reasonably well off he can afford to do this trip around europe which has obviously taken quite a long time you know this is this is like a big trip he is on his gap year but yeah you like him yeah he's, he seems like a good guy I say a good kid he's 30 he's <laughs> like a good guy uh, Jack seems like a good guy, and they, yeah, they're not—they're not those archetypal, not jock, but those sorts of obnoxious, loudmouth, like American teenagers that, or you know, young men. Yeah, I can imagine being friends with these two. Mm. Who wins your award for outstanding person behind the camera? I mean, this I didn't need to think about for any time at all. It's Rick Baker. A, that transformation scene is amazing. B, he this he this film ah. Performance was the first Academy Award for makeup. Oh yes, first ever one. That's right. And see if you ever look up a picture of him, he is a silver fox. <laughs> so Rick Baker, all the Rick way. Because uh-huh. that transformation scene is, you know, it has that has changed werewolf cinema. So yeah. Rick Baker. And just cinema cinema generally, I think. A horror horror cinema, definitely. Definitely. I mean, he's a genius. If he never did anything else after this, he would still be a genius. Yeah, what other things did he do after this? Sure, that's a really good question. As I said that, I was like, Alex probably should have had that to hand. Because <laughs> he's a big name. I know he has done lots of stuff, but I'm not quite encyclopedic enough to bring him 
immediately to mind or bring his CV up. No, I think the mind. trouble is I get, I'm so blown away by this that I then have this moment of like, oh, yeah. Because there's Rick Baker and there's Rob Bottin who's does similar things as well. And there's, I think there's a few of these special makeup guys. So he did the uh, <laughs> King Kong in the 70s King Kong remake. So that's not one of his career highlights. And I think he played King Kong as well. Did he? I, I seem amazing. to remember. I might be wrong on that, but that rings a bell. Oh, he did The Exorcist. Which he's is assistant, assistant on The Exorcist. Oh, obviously. Oh, apparently he's in Michael Jackson's Thriller video. I'm assuming he also worked on it. Oh, yes, because, of course, this, this this film directly came from Thriller, didn't it, I think? Oh, no, yeah. Thriller came directly from this. That's right. Michael Jackson was a fan of this film. He got John Landis to do the Thriller video as a direct follow-on from American World in London. Well, not no, a direct story follow-on, but it was it, he was inspired to do it from seeing this film. Oh, so he did The Howling as well in the same year. <laughs> so, so he did both 1981 werewolf films. Oh, he worked on Star Wars. Worked on Star Wars, did Videodrome, that's pretty good. Mm-hmm. Harry and the Hendersons. Oh, which I loved. I haven't watched that for a million years, but... Gorillas in the Mist. He did Wolf in 1990, 1994. Which is uh, a, I haven't seen it, but I can film. quite... Really? It, honestly, it. it's... I think it's anywhere at the moment but it is up there with one of the best werewolf films going gorillas in the mist just makes me cry apes edward that's good men in men in black that's a good film for the uh yeah special makeup effects so he's done a lot of stuff done a lot which is good some the of them ring, good the some American of them nutty the professor <laughs> <laughs> so i think my award for person behind the camera and i'm a bit hesitant on this one so this is for this film alone John Landis, I'm saying anyway. So he's quite a problematic figure for a number of reasons. Yeah. Like, we don't need to go into Twilight Zone, the movie, but, you know, there's there's that. Mm -hmm. So I'm limiting to this film only, I'm saying John Landis, because it's brilliantly directed, it's brilliantly written, it's got great atmosphere. Yeah. He's, he's, as well as the horror and the laughs, he's got the atmosphere down perfectly. Yeah, I mean, for such an early film in his career to have written it, really started writing when he was 18 it's amazing yeah no i think that's everything just just to say that i i do love this film and everyone i mean i hope you'd watched it before listening to this because we have essentially told you everything that happens but yes but go watch it again yes it's still worth seeing even if you have had it totally spoiled by us just now but you've only got yourselves to blame frankly frankly what were you thinking (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think for me, it, it's just a really, as well as being a great film, it's just a really important memory in my childhood of seeing this around my friend Mark's house. Because I was a very well-behaved boy, and so it was quite, it was nice to do something a bit illicit that we weren't really supposed to be doing. His parents had gone out, and we were just alone in the house in the middle of nowhere watching this film. And then when I went home, I didn't tell my parents. And they were they were watching some drama on TV, just some normal you know, grown-up drama, and I, I, it, it felt like I had changed. I'd been a bit rewired. It's like, oh, I'm, I'm a grown-up now, but I'm not, get, I'm not telling them what I've just been through. Yeah, they don't realise that you're a man now. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> I think for me, right. it's, it's, it's a real comfort watch. Mm. Like if I'm when I'm ill, or you know, if I'm feeling down, there's this and Night of the Living Dead that I will just put on, and it just. You know, for all the fact that they're not the happiest, jolliest films in the world, they just make me feel cosy and happy. Yeah. And yeah, so this 
like you sent me a list with all these films on and i saw this one here and i was like if someone else picks american werewolf in london i will be livid so before we go and wrap up and finish is there anything you'd like to plug well i am working on starting a blog that explores my current obsession with fungi in horror which is a little bit niche that's very specific yeah it's what i'm writing my dissertation on so yeah and it, it, there's a lot more of it than you might think but it's that's a work in progress because i'm very not technologically minded but if you follow me on twitter at deathcapdancing deathcapdancing all one word then when i finally get my blog which will be called dancing with deathcaps going you will know are you still momentum maureen on twitter as well or is i it am now? yeah i've got two i've got one that is mainly just me at the moment retweeting beautiful and creepy pictures of mushrooms (laughs) well thank you for listening to cardboard cinema club a retro tube production mainly because i haven't made a separate twitter account yet if you'd like to get in touch you can find me plus my RetroTube co-host Heather on Twitter at retro underscore tube or email on retrotubepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time when I'm back with another film and a different guest, cheerio! Bye. I hope the the emphasis on different that's a bit rude that different guests. Different guests. Bad different guests. Thank God. <laughs>